We just started a series last week in, in looking ahead toward the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And it, it's simply called Risen, Unexpected Moments Surrounding the Resurrection. We're trying to take a look at some of the unique moments, the unique situations, the unique characters that surround this awesome story about Jesus Christ. Today we're going to talk about liberating moments. Consolidated aircraft designed the B-24 in the days leading up to World War II. By war's end in late 1945, nearly 19,000 had been built, giving it the distinction of being the most produced heavy bomber in history, the most produced multi-engine aircraft in history, and the most produced American military aircraft. Its name? Liberator. Powerful name. The word liberator or liberate invokes thoughts and images of daring rescue, unexpected release, heroic deliverance, bold escape, courageous salvation. Liberate. Among the stories and the people that surround the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's an awesome picture of liberation. But it comes in the most unique and unexpected way. Have you ever stopped to realize that there were three criminals, three thieves that surrounded the closing hours of the life of Jesus Christ. One was liberated because of Jesus. One chose to be liberated from Jesus. And one was liberated by Jesus. Now, I think there's some great lessons and some great truths that we, we want to catch, capture from what's going on here. And, and we're going to go back to the pas one of the passages that we read last week because all these stories are just intertwined. So we'll be hitting same, similar passages throughout this series. But Matthew chapter 27 gives us insight into the first thief. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At this time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now we saw last week that Pilate is in a really tough spot. He holds the power to decide a man's life, freedom, or death. Last summer, I got a letter inviting me. Well, it really wasn't inviting me. It was informing me that my number had come up. I was going to be on the list in the month of June for federal jury duty up in Indianapolis. 
Now, thankfully, in the 30 days that I was on call, I did not get called to jury duty. I was both relieved and I was, i am be honest with you, I was just a tad bit disappointed. It would have been really interesting to see how our legal system operates at the federal level had it been an open and shut case. But the thought of being on a jury where my vote could alter a person's life one way or the other, that was a daunting feeling. I really didn't want to be a part of something like that because you see, a courtroom is an intimidating place, especially if you're the defendant. Some trials remain infamous throughout history. Who in this room has not read of or heard about the Salem witch trials would happened all the way back in colonial America? And some names will forever be seared in our minds because of their trials. Charles Manson, O.J. Simpson, Timothy McVeigh, Casey Anthony, Jody Arias, and more. Netflix is even now producing a series, Making a Murderer, with the challenge of getting convicted murderer Stephen Avery a new trial. But no trial, no trial has ever been as famous, or perhaps I should say infamous, as the trial of Jesus in Pilate's court. Now, during the Passover... There was a merciful custom called the Paschal Pardon, where a prisoner was released. A presidential pardon would be the closest thing we'd have to it today. Now, you need to understand this. 2,000 feet away from Pilate's judgment seat was Jerusalem's prison. And Pilate seizes the moment. Pilate sees an opportunity here to get out of this predicament. He, he picks the worst criminal possible. The, the, this criminal that the Bible describes as notorious, his name is Barabbas. Surely, the city of Jerusalem, surely the good citizens of this place would not want that hardened, vicious criminal back out on the streets. They would reluctantly, perhaps, but wisely choose Jesus instead, getting Pilate off the hook. Boy, did he misjudge the crowd. Bible calls him notorious. The Bible says in Luke that Barabbas is not just a thief, he is also a murderer. As a matter of fact, since those who died on either side of Jesus were also thieves, it is most likely that they were cohorts with Barabbas, that he was probably the ringleader of this band. The three crosses that stood on Golgotha that Friday were really intended for Barabbas and his cohorts, his henchmen, who were scheduled to die that day. But because the trial of Jesus went in a different direction than Pilate wanted, when Jesus was thrown into the mix, it changed everything. Let me see if I can paint this picture for you. It's the night before his crucifixion. He is alone. His comrades are gone. The torture of crucifixion loomed large in his mind. Visions of carrying a cross, of unspeakable pain, of nails tearing flesh, of a slow, agonizing death interrupt his every waking thought. If ever there was a night for prayer, this was the night. It would be Barabbas' last night, and it would be a sleepless one. As the morning dawned, he could hear the ruckus outside of his cell. There was a crowd gathering at Pilate's judgment seat. Now, being 2,000 feet away from what was going on, he couldn't hear what Pilate said, but he could certainly hear what the crowd said. He couldn't hear Pilate ask, who should I release? 
all he could hear the crowd say was, Barabbas. He couldn't hear Pilate say, what then shall I do with Jesus? But he could hear the response, crucify him. So there in his cell, all Barabbas could hear was, Barabbas, crucify him. He went limp. Beads of sweat dotted his forehead. Time had run out and the soldiers' footsteps could be heard echoing off the halls coming down the prison. This was his most feared moment. The cell door swings open and the centurion says, Barabbas, I don't get it, but you can go free. Another man is going to die in your place today. His name is Jesus. Now, I don't think Barabbas had any clue what to do at that moment. Imagine what was going through his mind. Is this real or is this a cruel joke? I mean, I don't know anybody named Jesus, and I certainly don't know anyone that would be willing to die in my place. But when the soldiers took off the shackles and when they let him out into the sunlight, into the cheers of the crowd, when they saw Barabbas released, he realized that the impossible had just happened. Now, please don't. Please do not miss the, story, the power of this story. In one incredible moment, the whole narrative of human history is dramatized by what many consider to be a side story to the crucifixion. Oh, but people, this is no side story. This is no accidental afterthought. The contrast between Barabbas and Jesus is the story. One man broken by his sinful and criminal choices with no hope of redemption suddenly finds himself liberated by no virtue of his own, but by the substitutionary death of an innocent man. That is the story. That is our story. And the irony in this story is inescapable. History suggests to us that the prisoner's full name was Jesus Barabbas. Whoa. And do you know what Barabbas means? Anytime you see the name B-A-R at the beginning of a name, as in Bartholomew or Bartimaeus, Bar means son of. Bartholomew, son of Tholomew. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Bar-Abbas. Barabbas. Bar, son of Abba, son of the father. Do you, do you get it? Jesus, the son of the father, takes the place of Jesus, the son of the father. The divine son of the father takes the place of the devious son of the father. We who are the wayward sons and daughters of God have been liberated by the one and only Son of God. This murderous Barabbas, a taker of life, is given a new lease on life by the giver of life whose life is now taken from him. Wow. I don't think Barabbas could have begun to comprehend what had just happened. He was just thrilled about being liberated. But but under those circumstances, if that had been you, would you not have wanted to know who it was that liberated you? Nothing suggests he did. He simply disappears into history. Barabbas is the only one who can claim that Jesus took his physical place. But that's the extent of his liberation. Merely liberated because 
of Jesus. Let's take a look at the other two thieves, number two and number three. At 9 a.m., three men are crucified. Jesus, whose disciples have fled and left him, is accompanied to the top of the hill by two of Barabbas' disciples, whose leader has abandoned them. We have no record that Barabbas showed up at the cross and said, sorry about this, guys, or I'm, I'm, I'm praying for you, or anything. He just fled in his freedom. As the morning wore on, it is inconceivable to me to think that these two thieves nailed on crosses next to Jesus could not have picked up on the uniqueness of this man who hung between them. It, though, has two separate effects on the thieves. Uh, the one could only find angry resentment in, in his impending death. Luke chapter 23, verse 39 says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, you know, the man is dying. I, I understand. And he is resentful that the worst of the three of them gets a pardon. But he still has to die. He was basically saying, hey, supposed Savior, you've already saved one of us. Now save the other two of us. He didn't care that Jesus saved himself. He just wanted away off of that cross. I, I don't think he was expecting a response. He had just turned his back on God and the rest of the world at that moment. But he was so short-sighted. He had this one incredible opportunity of spending the last six hours of his life in this world next to the God of the universe who was spending his last six hours in this world redeeming and liberating lost humanity. What an opportunity. And yet he could not get past his bad luck to see his good fortune at a second chance. And he couldn't get past his disappointment in the loss of his physical life to find joy in a new life in Christ. No, on that cross, the second thief chose to be counted with the cynical and simply be liberated from Jesus. I don't want any part of you. Oh, people, don't be numbered with the cynical. Don't get caught up with the crowd. Don't lose sight of the hope because of your disappointment. Don't get so disappointed by what's happening physically that you cannot find the joy in the spiritual relationship we have with Jesus. But the third thief, well, that's the best story of all. Listen to how Luke tells his response. Now remember, it is very hard to breathe and very hard to speak while you're on the cross. But listen to what this thief gets out but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. I've often wondered what happened to this man. Did he grow up in the synagogue as a faithful Jewish boy and somewhere in his young adulthood got lured away by the glamour of the insurrectionist who, who fights against Rome or the whole concept of thievery where you can line your pockets with the wealth of others. I, I don't know what happened. And I've often wondered, did this thief end up one day in the crowd 
When Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, and here on the cross, it dawns on him that he's the prodigal, and he needs to find a way home. Do you realize the power of his statement of faith? He says to his cohort, he says, don't you realize we're in the presence of God? He sees Jesus, he recognizes Jesus as God on that cross. And then he says, we're getting what we justly deserve, but this man is guilt-free. And then he turns his attention to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me. Now, when we use the word remember, we use it more in the sense of, boy, I, don't, I can't afford to forget that. I, I, I need to recall that piece of information. But in the Bible, the word remember has a much deeper meaning. It means remember with the idea of taking action on somebody else's behalf. And so when the thief asks Jesus, remember me, he's saying, remember me and take action on my behalf if it is possible. You, you can almost hear him saying something like this. I followed Jesus Barabbas and look where it got me. Now I want to follow you, the true Jesus, into your kingdom. What wonderful assurance Jesus gives him. In this moment of his greatest pain, he receives his greatest peace. This thief was liberated by Jesus. What happened to the first thief, Barabbas? Well, we can conclude one of two things happened. Either he took this second chance in his life, turned his life around, became a good guy, maybe even became a Christian. Or he went right back to his murderous ways. Since there is no hint of him in church history, I would suggest that such silence indicates he returned to his former way of life, the only life, evidently, he knew. Jesus, you see, warned us about this kind of thing. Jesus warned us that you can't just empty yourself of the sinlessness. You've got to also replace it with the godliness. You can't just get rid of the bad without putting in the good. Because if you just get rid of the bad, it creates a vacuum in your soul. And nature abhors a vacuum. And it will suck the bad right back in if you're not careful. And the latter state will be worse than the former state. You see, when you get rid of the bad, you replace it with the good. When you get rid of the sin, you replace it with the Savior. And if you don't, you'll go right back to the old ways. My guess, Barabbas returned to the only life he knew because he never discovered who it was that liberated him from his cross. What happened to the second thief? He died in his sin. He had the same opportunity as the other, but, but he was so cynical. He chose not to act upon the mercy that Jesus could offer. I've thought about this too. After the, the third thief spoke to Jesus, offered his faith, and Jesus offered him eternity, you'd have thought that the other thief could have said, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus. I've changed my mind. I've heard this discourse. I believe now that you are the Son of God. Would Jesus have extended the same invitation to him? Absolutely. But I want you to notice this. After the third thief spoke such words of hope and faith, Jesus didn't turn to the first one and say, Want to change your mind? You want me to give you a second chance at that? You want to rethink what you just said a few minutes ago? Jesus didn't say anything to him. Here's what you got to realize. That, that he has come as our liberator. We each have the choice. He's not going to force himself upon us. He is not going to make, him our, make us make him our savior. 
the invitation is there. And here's the thing. God places himself in close proximity to, to us so that we will see him. I mean, how much closer can you get? How much more captive can you be than crucified right next to the guy? And yet with, with the God of the universe hanging there, he doesn't change his mind and Jesus doesn't go back for a second chance. He had his choice and Jesus respected his choice even though it was the wrong choice. He said, I want to be liberated from you, Jesus. And Jesus said, okay, okay. What happened to the third thief? Well, that's the story with the happy ending. Did you notice in one sentence what Jesus gave this guy? Listen to Jesus' response and what, what he says. First of all, it's not a joke, it's genuine. Jesus said, I am telling you the truth. And secondly, it wasn't a hope in some distant future, it was a hope for the present. He said, today. And it wasn't this all-encompassing to everybody. It was very personal. You. And it wasn't a dream. It was a real place. Paradise. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Wow. What a promise. Do you realize the same is true for us? I believe with all of my heart this morning that what I'm telling you is the truth. And I believe it is the truth because no other options pass the test of scrutiny like the story of Jesus Christ. Dig it out for yourself. Study history. Study the evidence. And I, I know you'll come to the same conclusion that nothing else compares to what this story is. Historically, evidentiary. Stuff just points always in that direction. Here's something else. While we, do not, and while we do anticipate a grand future, hope is present right now. We have the hope already that Christ has turned our life around. And I couldn't get through a day without that hope. Can, can you? Can, can you get through a day without that hope? Salvation is available all through, to all through Jesus Christ. But I'm convinced that if you had been the only sinner in the world, if I had been the only sinner in the world, everybody else was saved, everybody else was perfect, if I'd been the only one or if you'd been the only one, I believe Jesus would come and have died in our place so that we would have that opportunity. That gets real personal. In Max Lucado's book, He Chose the Nails, Max writes this, the only required act for salvation was the shedding of blood and yet he did so much more. Touch the cross as you feel the timbers of the cross and trace the braid of the crown and finger the point of the spike, pause and listen. Perchance, you will hear him whisper, I did it just for you. This is personal for each one of us here. And we are not headed to some wistful dreamland, but to a real home reserved in heaven for us. Aren't you glad his kingdom is not of this world? The more chaotic, ridiculous, and absurd our world and our culture becomes, the more I'm grateful that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Now, what can we take away from these stories? Well, I hope you've already taken away a few things, some great lessons we've already looked at, but, but let me just leave you with these three thoughts to contemplate. Here's the first one. Never too good. Never too good. No one will be saved because he or she is good enough. There's a famous painting by Rembrandt. It's called The Three Crosses. And, and in the painting, down in the corner is a figure that, that art scholars say is Rembrandt himself. That Rembrandt painted himself into the picture of the crucifixion of Christ because he realized his sins were as responsible for the death of the Savior as anybody 
else's. J.C. Ryle wrote, One thief on the cross was saved that none should despair, and only one that none should presume. Don't presume upon the grace of God. This is your choice. He will not force it upon you. The words on the entrance arches to the concentration camps of Auschwitz and Dachau were these, work makes free. In other words, work will liberate you. Unfortunately, there are too many people that take that to the spiritual side. It wasn't true in Auschwitz and Dachau. It's not true when it comes to your spiritual life. Your works, your goodness will not liberate you. Only the work of Jesus Christ liberates. His good deeds bring salvation and his alone. So no one is ever too good. Here's the second thing, never too late. As long as you have breath, the invitation is open to you. The thief didn't have much breath left. But he used it to honor Christ, and he got eternity as a result. Here's the third one. Never too bad. You haven't done anything to so severe, so bad, that you cannot be forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ. Your badness, my badness, cannot overcome the goodness and the grace of Christ. Just last week, I finished the book, Ghost Soldiers, detailing the most successful raid ever to liberate a prison camp. Author Hampton Sides tells the story of a dramatic mission on January the 28th, 1945, when 121 hand-selected army rangers slipped in behind enemy lines and with the aid of Filipino guerrillas, rescued 513 American and British POWs who had spent three years in the horrendous prison camp near the city of Cabanatuan, Philippines. However, when the attack that was going so well reached the barracks where the prisoners were located, the army rangers got a surprise. The prisoners were cowered in the corners of their barracks. Some of them had grabbed pieces of wood, anything they could to defend themselves. You, they could see the look of sheer fear in their faces. And the army comes through and the guys say, we're here. One particular prisoner, Bert Bank, refused to budge. Even when a ranger walked right up to him and tugged on his arm, come on, we're here to save you, the ranger said. Run for the gate. Bert didn't move. The ranger looked into his vacant eyes. What's wrong with you, he asked. Don't you want to be free? And something about that word free registered. Bank began to smile. He reached up to the outstretched hand of the ranger, took the hand, and started for the gate. And freedom liberated. Four Americans died in the rescue. Two rangers in the battle and two prisoners who were simply too fragile to survive. The freed prisoners marched 25 miles to reach the American lines before boarding their transport ships home. And with each step they took, their stunned disbelief gave way to utter joy. It is said that it is the greatest liberation effort ever made. I respectfully disagree. The greatest liberation effort ever made took place on a cross near the city of Jerusalem. One hand-selected son of the Father slipped behind enemy lines and liberated lost humanity once and forever. 
Only those who will follow him will find their way to freedom and home. And with every step that you follow Jesus, utter joy will replace the heartache, the disappointment, the misery, the prison of sin that we leave behind. Do you know the liberator? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior?